Welcome to Three Devs and a Maybe. Now introducing your show hosts, Michael Budd, Fraser Hart, Lewis Gaines, and Ed Mann. Hello and welcome to another episode of Three Devs and a Maybe. My name's Ed Mann, and today we're lucky to be joined yet again by Scott Voloshin. How are you doing, Scott? Hi, thanks for having me on. Well, thank you again for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. It's great to be. It's great to be here. So last episode we we did, we kind of, we, we did a, a massive talk about your DDD book, which I should now say is in print form, which is awesome news. I'm sure you're really happy with that. Yeah, it's finally, finally out in print. Um, and if you go to my website, you can see all the places you can buy. It's got buttons to take you straight to various places. So that's good. Is there something about having a physical book? There, there's, there's something still kind of nice about that. Yeah, it's there's something about physical books are great. I, it's nice to have something instead of a Kindle. You can you can you can put uh, post-it notes in, and you can um, do various other things. Uh, one thing that we were going to be to, we're, we were going to try and discuss that episode, but because we say we we're talking so much about the DDD stuff, is uh, the talk that you gave at NDC London uh, in early January, the power of composition, which is just a great name for a talk. Now that it's available, kind of in video form, and I was able to actually get to to watch it, and I was wondering maybe you could if you could introduce the talk and, and what actually it covers to the audience. Sure. It's, um, it was, the reason I did the talk is because if you're a functional programmer or you're new to functional programming, you hear about composition all the time, composition this, composition that. And it's, 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 you know, it's hard to explain. Often people don't really explain what they mean by that and, and why it's so great and why it's so fantastic. So the, the goal of this talk is really to explain what is composition and why it is so important. And once, once you have a system which is designed around composition, which is one of the kind of strong points about functional programming, if everything's designed for composition, then you get a lot of benefits in terms of how you build programs and how you reuse pieces of code. And it's kind of really obvious, but uh, it's, uh, there are certain things in order to get the composition to work, there are certain things you need to do and certain little things you need to look out for. So that's the kind of stuff I talk about in the talk. Obviously, it's, it's kind of, you know, taking it from a functional mindset. But can this be applied, you know, to the OO world when we consider a composition there? Or is there subtle differences? It, it can be. But one of the things, there's a couple of problems in the OO world, which is that for composition to work, you need to have certain things like no side effects. Uh, and that means no mutability. Uh, and that doesn't, you know, object-oriented systems tend to have a lot of mutable state everywhere. Um, you can sort of design OO systems not to be that way, but uh, most, you know, mainstream languages don't really help that. Um, and just in terms of working as everything as an input, the, the pipeline model for composition, you have an input and output and you glue these pipes together. Object-oriented models don't work that way in general. You don't have inputs and outputs. You have requests and responses and you have these big objects can do many different things and it's hard, it's, it's hard to glue them together without some extra plumbing. And one of the things about... A, a composition a system designed for composition is you can glue them together without any extra plumbing you can just literally take two things and stick them together absolutely yeah and it's kind of like you compose based on objects obviously in the OO world which has like on it a boatload of methods attached to it already whereas in a functional world it is just a function yeah and and and, and this is where keeping it, the data separate from the behavior it, it obviously in the in the OO world the, the, the whole point is the behavior and the data are kind of linked together in one single object. And in a functional paradigm, the data and the things that act on the data are completely separate. And um, so it's not at all object-oriented, but it does mean that you can glue things together. You, you know, Because they're separate, the data and, and the functions are, can be um, composed independently. And it's, it's, it, you, know, you, can, um, you, don't, you only have to worry about one thing when you're, when you're gluing together functions as opposed to trying to compose different kinds of objects. It, it just doesn't make sense often. You end up with all sorts of complications when you try to do that. And then, like, you know, you mentioned functional, you mentioned function composition, but then obviously the fact that the separation of the data and the actual action, you also get type composition. Yes. I mean, most functional languages have something which is called algebraic type system. Uh, and I'd like to call that a composable type system because the big benefit is you can glue types together because types are just data. Um, their types in a functional world are much more like sets than like objects. So it's just data, a uh, set of data or a set of, you know, things that you can use in functions. And so you can, you know, you can add them together. You can 
have a kind of Cartesian product of those things, and that's like a, a, what we call a product type. Uh, you can uh, kind of union them together. We call those a, a union type or a, a sum type. And you can actually build from those kind of basic things. You can use the same principle of composition, bigging, uh, building bigger and bigger things from small components. Uh, you can build really sophisticated types that can do all sorts of clever things. And And again, because there's no intermediate glue needed you can just literally glue types together it's a lot easier to do in in in, in the functional world or certainly in the typed functional world we have a lots and lots of types we gen- tend to use you know hundreds and hundreds of types while in a OO world we tend not to create so many classes because it's kind of heavy and unwieldy you mentioned at the beginning of the talk a type well actually i think it's hilarious at the beginning you obviously say you know what do you know about inheritance and all this kind of stuff you know you're better off trying to keep that our way when you're trying to learn these functional concepts and composition in this regard but it was interesting because obviously you mentioned like with types and everything how having like say an object is a, a class and types like that but they're very different to the types that you will get uh, like which are just essentially just kind of sets yeah i, I think it's a it's it, one of the things, and I, I mean, I try and do that. I just did this thing, as you, as you say, at the beginning of the talk, where I say, if you want to learn functional programming from a, as a beginner, you know, you need to forget everything you know, because it's just if you try and say, well, how do I do a class? How do I do a loop? How do I do this? So it just doesn't. You're trying to think in the wrong way. It's better to to approach the problem with a beginner's mind and like how do I even do anything and then the the problems are the same it's like well how do I rather than saying how do I do the strategy pattern or um, how do I iterate over a loop you know iterate over collection you say well how do I parameterize the behavior of something or how do I uh, do an action for each element of a collection those things are the same, you know, that's a design problem. And, but the, the, the implementation technique is very different in the functional paradigm and the OO paradigm. So uh, it's, 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 it's really important to forget about implementation and, and focus on, on, the, on, the, on the problems. I mean, like I say, the, both, both paradigms address the same kinds of problems, but in very, very different ways. And it's, I've seen people trying to bring OO paradigms to functional programming and it's just painful because they get very frustrated like why can't you even do this you know so it's a paradigm shift as opposed to just a language shift you know if i'm moving from say python to ruby i'm very much in the same you know oo mutable paradigm that i can just it's just syntax change whereas you know this is a complete philosophy change uh, it'd be interesting to get your opinion on because I suppose, you know, this, this the idea then that, you know, people get confused when going to functional languages. They they just want to kind of, all right, how do I do for loops? How do I do side effects and stuff? And, you know, you have languages such as like Scala and Scala kind of allows you to write things. It's the best of both worlds in, in some regards. Like it allows you to write pretty much Java code and then you're able to go completely into the typed functional code. Um, do you find that those languages, I mean, in some regard, maybe F-sharp as well, with certain things it can do with side effects, do you find that confuses people too much? Like that's the confusion point? Yes. Yeah, I think I think I, I tend to like languages which have strong opinions um, about the right way. I mean, it's one of, I mean, I like, I mean, I like Python over Ruby, for example, because Python tends to be more opinionated. Um, and it's, it's, it's true that basically most mainstream languages are really the same paradigm. I mean, if you know Ruby, you know, it's, you know, Python, if you know C, C sharp, you pretty much know Java, you know, obviously you know the libraries and stuff, but the, the concepts are going to be very familiar. Um, going to a functional paradigm is, is going to completely hurt your head. Um, yeah. So for learning, it's an interesting thing. F sharp is very, very, um, it's very functional. It does have some object oriented features, um, I think Scala takes it too far in terms of the kitchen sink. You can really do some very bizarre stuff on the functional side and you can do some, you know, classic OO stuff. And I think you end up with a mishmash of paradigms in your code. And it means that anyone who's reading your code has to potentially understand every possible way of doing something. You know, if I, if I'm an F sharp, isn't that bad. Um, I think if you, if you look at, uh, you know, a language, which is in a very opinionated language, you may not understand the code, but once you understand how the language works, you're going to understand it's, it, there aren't too many different ways of doing something. And so it, it doesn't make it easy to maintain the code. Obviously, there's the barrier of understanding the code in the first place, but it, people tend not to do things in, in too many different weird ways. And I think languages, kitchen sink languages do worry me because it's it, it, in terms of maintainability, if you have a large project which lasts a long time, the code just gets to be a real mess, you know. It's really hard to enforce a certain 
I mean, I, I think in general, this is the thing, constraints are good. In general, the more constraints you have, people always look for freedom, and I think constraints are good. So the, the less things you can do, it's often better for a readability point of view, from a maintainability point of view. Having a, a limited things of a limited set of things that are done really well, um, I actually think that makes for a good programming language. You know, that a language such as Scala, you know, you can see why they decided to, to do it. You know, it's like the transition period. So you're able to get people to start to use the language. But the trouble is, is now you've you, you don't you almost need that separation of a completely different looking syntax, completely different paradigm shift in its entirety, because all you'll do is to try and see shapes and similar patterns that you already know in that, you know, you need to completely separate yourself and if you have a language that's like a kitchen sink language you're able to kind of see already things you already know and it doesn't allow you to take yourself out and kind of apply a completely different paradigm yeah yeah when you're learning it's it's easy to fall back on on um your old familiar habits and it's it's a it's it's a it's a it's just a tension because sometimes like haskell where you really are thrown in the deep end and you have no choice but to do functional techniques you know, you can't even say hello world until you've had, you know, a month's worth, of, you know, hello in most, in the Haskell books, hello world is like in the seventh chapter of the book. You know, you have to understand monads before you can say hello world. And I mean, I understand why they do that, but that might be a little bit too deep. I think, um, I think languages are halfway, OCaml and F sharp, I think are a good compromise. You can do mutable state though you can fall back on bad habits but the language makes it really hard to do that i mean for example in f in f sharp if you want to have a mutable you know value you you have to use the mutable keyword so every time you want something mutable you have to say mutable this mutable that it makes it you know you can do it but it kind of looks really ugly and it's explicitly saying this is something you should be looking out for you know there's a reason why this is different yeah exactly so it just makes it just the, the you know the it's the, the the bad code kind of looks ugly, and I think rather than forbidding bad code altogether, just allow it but make it look kind of really ugly. It's the same thing with the uh, the, the object oriented features in F sharp, which is is very useful if you if you you want to be compatible with C sharp or all the .NET libraries, which is great. But the object oriented features tend to look a lot uglier in F sharp than the functional features. And um, that's, I think that's good. It kind of discourages you from doing that unless you really need to. Yeah, that's a nice way of thinking of it because it not only explicitly says this is different and, you know, this is, but it also, as you say, this is not syntactically pleasing. It's also saying, well, there's, you know, this way looks nicer. So this is drifting you to use the, the ways, you know, that the language is actually trying to intend to do it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I just think... It's a it's a very interesting one. That one of the one of the problems is, as always, we have almost no evidence on on makes for good best practices in language design. We for for for, for massive industry, and I I, I harp to, I do go on about this all the time. We literally know very little about best practices in programming, best practices in language design. You know, it's just very strange that none of the big companies have spent money trying to understand this because there's so much money involved. But uh, Basically, we're making up as we go along, and it's it, most of the evidence is sort of anecdotal. It's like, I, well, I like it this way. I mean, that's true. I like I, I like it this way myself. I like opinionated languages. I like languages with concise syntax. You know, I don't know if there's any evidence that's good, but I I like it. So, <laughs> what can I say, really? Because it, it does seem to go into two camps, doesn't it? It's, it's either very opinionated, uh, or it's very much kitchen sink. And it's, you know, either based on, you know, kind of you say, like you mentioned Python, and then we will talk about closure and stuff, you know, the the BDFLs, you know, there's this kind of, you know, someone's leading the front of what this should be and the yay or nay of what's going in. So their philosophy stays as opposed to say like PHP, which is very much like we're going to solve anything and everything that at that time is deemed a problem so it's a very general i mean the whole concept of a general programming link general purpose programming language is always strange to me because it's kind of like so it does everything then but then nothing well i don't know what your feelings are towards that you see people will just i mean i know a lot of people who love pearl and pearl is like the ultimate kitchen sink language <laughs> if you if there's a way of doing it you know like well here's 10 different ways of doing it and it, I, I know people who love pearl and they that just fits the way they think, you know, and I personally can't stand it. But you know, who am I to say they're wrong? I mean, like I say, there's no evidence either way. It's just personal preference. But um, I think if you're learning, I think if you are learning a language, I think it's very hard to learn functional programming in a language that doesn't make it easy. So if you're, if you're trying to learn functional programming, trying to do it in Java, 
it's kind of painful. And it looks you know? ugly as well, doesn't and it? And it looks ugly. Exactly. I mean, there's a good example. Java is designed to have a nice OO syntax and try to do functional stuff, and it just does. It looks weird because it's not really designed for that. F sharp and Haskell and stuff, they're designed to do functional stuff, and so the whole syntax is built around that. Absolutely. And it's like, you know, with composition, actually, you know, as a subject matter there, you know, you look at composition in, say, languages like Java, and it, you have to read these calls, you know, that you're making composing together, read them inside out, and, you know, nested function call confusion and things like that. Whereas, you know, in, in languages such as F sharp, it's like, that's a first class problem that we're going to have like piping operators for. Yeah, so this is, comes back to the, the language design. If, if you're going to have composition, you need everything to have one input and one output. Uh, now, functional languages, purely by coincidence, have this thing called currying, where every function is a function with one input and one output. So composition is really easy. It's a, a, you know which came first, but it, it certainly means that you can compose any two functions together because of because of that thing. If, if you're trying to compose different kinds of functions together in in other languages, you have to do the artificially do currying and partial application. It's just it's not a natural. Uh, principle. So, I mean, a, a lot of the, a lot of the, I mean, I wouldn't say that functional languages were designed around composition because they came from, you know, originally they came from a sort of different place. But everything you need to make composition easy, functional languages have. Um, like I say, the, 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 you know, the lack of side effects, the lack of uh, not needing to do any extra glue or intermediate stuff in order to compose things together it's just it makes it it's it's super easy to do composition so that's why it's become the sort of the dominant paradigm in in, in functional programming one thing you're very good at is the analogies uh, and you did some very great analogies in this talk kind of comparing composition to how you know lego brio and unix uh, and I, I really enjoyed the three you know main points that you make you know that all pieces are designed to be connected you can connect two pieces together and get another piece that can still be connected and reusable in different contexts and it I think that kind of you know, analogy that you did there really, for me, helps click. And it, and it does kind of show in all these different things how good composition can be and kind of where you know it's applicable. Yeah, I mean, the Lego is the classic example. But I mean, it, it's amazing how much you can actually learn from looking at why Lego works. Why is Lego so popular? I mean, yes, it's because every piece fits with every other piece. Well, it's obvious that you should design software that way. But in most most of the you know, code, especially in OO, we don't really design the pieces to be fit. We've got adapters exactly. and all this kind of stuff, and they're all Exactly, we need to have special adapters. But if you build it, you know, with, if you're sticking two Lego pieces together, you don't need a special Lego adapter. You can just literally, they all have exactly the same kind of interface. You can just literally take any two pieces and stick them together. You don't need, and because you don't need to build special adapters, it makes life a lot easier. You can build really big you know, things from a bunch of small parts. And, and the, the second thing, which is that if you connect two pieces together, you get another kind of the same kind of thing. So you stick two Lego pieces together, you get another piece of kind of a bigger piece of Lego, and you can connect that to other pieces of Lego. This this thing that, you know, and we see this, I mean, one of the reasons why, you know, in, in a simple, I mean, uh, a simple thing like adding two numbers together, you get another number, you know, so that makes it really easy to add lots and lots of numbers together. We take that sort of for granted in all sorts of areas of our life. Um, and again, we don't really apply that to programming so much. So if you apply it to programming where every, uh, if you, you know, you take two pieces, you glue two things together and you get another thing that can also be glued together, that's a really, really powerful principle. Now, you can, again, you can sort of do it in OO, but you really have to work at it all the time. It really doesn't, it's not like a natural technique. But in, in functional programming, it really is the, the natural technique. It's really easy to do that because of the way that the functions work. You know, functions are designed to be glued together that way. Yeah, and, and the connecting two pieces is obviously then the form of abstraction that you can do in a functional language. That's right. I talk about that in the talk. It's like if you have, uh, you know, if you, I have a little thing where if you have an apple, a, a function that takes an apple and returns a banana, and you have another function that takes a banana and returns a cherry or something, when you glue them together, the, the banana part disappears. And now you just have a function that takes an apple and returns a cherry. And so, yeah, the banana, nobody cares about the banana anymore. You now have a bigger function, which I can then give to you, and, and you, you don't know how it works inside. All you care is the inputs and the outputs. And in, again, this is the other thing about in order for – if I give you a function that, that turns an apple into a cherry, in order for, for me to give that to you as a reusable piece, 
it must not have any that has to be the complete input and output there can't be any side effects there's no kind of global variables there's no writing to a database there's no you know doing anything weird because if i gave you a function and it relied on a database existing or the file system existing or you know a global variable existing something you couldn't you wouldn't be able to use that function that function would not be reusable but because there's no side effects and because everything's completely explicit it's like you need to give this thing an apple and it will give you back a cherry there's no other inputs and you can be sure that it will work as a sort of standalone piece and again that's one of the things about lego and brio and so on they don't have strings attached literally you know if lego had lots of little bits of string attached it would be the, the string would all get tangled up and you wouldn't be able to do anything you know but we we tend to write our programs often where there are strings attached and uh, which means that you can't it makes reuse very very hard because in order to use this function or this class you have to have access to this other you know this database or this file system or this global variable this other class that you don't you know that's implicitly used in in the you know inside the class that's like well it won't work because this library doesn't exist and all this kind of stuff so it's really nice if you can not have any dependencies and that makes Again, it makes the code much more reusable and much more testable and, you know, much more explicit. Mm. And it just means moving those dependencies to the edge, doesn't it? You know, like bringing them in when they need to be, like the side effect happens at the end. So you've got this nice piece in the middle that can be easily tested, easily composed, and then you have all the, the nasty stuff kind of around the edge. Yes. I mean, obviously, you have to have side effects at some point. Otherwise, the program is not going to do anything. Um, you won't get your hello world. It just exactly. It's got to, you know. Otherwise, it just sort of heats the CPU. Uh, yeah. You, at some point, you want hello world to be printed on the screen, and so there has to be some sort of side effect. But yeah, the the goal is you keep that stuff to the edges. You either at the beginning of the function or at the end of the function. The idea is that the core domain is pure. That there's there's no side effects in in the core domain, and so this leads the functional world obviously. You know, it's really it can be hard to work that way. So this is the whole thing of where you, things like monads and all this stuff comes in because how can we represent things that we want to do without actually doing them? So how can we represent uh, an exception, an error without throwing exception? How can we say that we want something to be async without actually starting a task? How can we say that we want to write to a database without actually writing to a database? So we tend to build special types that represent those actions. Uh, like there's a instead of a, an exception, we have a, a, an error type or a result type that has a success or failure. Instead of literally starting a task, we create an async type that represents something that we want to do. And you know, people, all this this is where this is where the whole thing of using monads and all this stuff comes in because it's a natural result of trying to design for composition without side effects. And so all these complicated tools that functional programmers have, it's just an it's, it's just a, a result of solving a problem that comes from, you know, trying to keep things pure and trying to keep things without side effects. But it, it's interesting, actually, isn't it? Because obviously someone can come along and be very confused, both with the language that we're very used to, all these languages are used to, side effects is just a first-class thing. Whereas in functional, it's, it's not a first-class thing. Purity is the first-class thing. So when you see an example that you're typically going to say, like the hello world, you need to understand or at least, you know, you need to realize that, you know, monads are happening, these things are happening. So having kind of, you know, in an F-sharp way where you do kind of at least allow you to do some stuff that could be side effecty, uh, we're going to make it look ugly, is probably a good thing. Because in the Haskell world, you know, it, as you say, chapter seven, you finally get onto what you want to do, which is the beginning of how you would normally explore a language. Yeah, I mean, it's what's interesting is, is that I'm not, the, the, a lot of people are very, very big on purity at all costs, like literally never having any kind of side effect of anything whatsoever. I'm not 100% sold on that. I mean, I think it's nice to have escape hatches for things like logging. And, and I mean, it's, 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 it's true. Every time you have an escape hatch, that means it's one, it means it makes, makes the function less composable. And so the, the people who are into purity, it's like every time you do something, every time you break it, it makes it means you can't reuse this function, and it's it's um you know it's it's not as composable. On the on the other hand, I think the composition as a principle, um, just like most OO people now use dependency injection. They you know I think most developers realize that having uh, making your dependencies explicit is is really really useful. I think you can have a kind of happy medium where the important dependencies are very explicit. Like if you're writing to the file system or something, 
you don't just do that right in the middle of the code. You pass that in as a, as a dependency. But if you need just need to you know print to the screen because you're trying to debug something, you know you don't have to put that in a writer monad just for that one thing. You can just bypass that. So that's you know that's my that's my tech. I guess I'm a little more pragmatic that way. I, mean, I can understand other people's point of view, but it's it is, it is nice sometimes to have a, an escape hatch. But I think the philosophy. Uh, it is definitely sort of breaking the the purest philosophy of never have a side effect anywhere. Because I mean, purity then is something that's very good for say testing. And how do you go around like FP kind of functional programming mindset way of testing things? And how does it differ to you from the OO world? Um, well, it, again, it depends on whether it's pure functions or the edge functions which do I/O. So the the pure functions. Are super easy to test because they they there's no all you do is you say well a pure function one of the things is if it, if you give it a certain input it always has the same output referentially transparent exactly so that makes it really easy to test you say I give you this input and I expect this output and the testing is trivial really I mean it's not trivial but it's you know and you're guaranteed that you, that you don't have any weird side effects because these are pure functions in terms of if you do have I O. There are a couple of different ways. One is the classic thing where you make a mock. Uh, so instead of writing to the disk, you write to uh, something in memory or whatever. That's the same kind of thing you would do in in um, OO. Thing. The nice thing is again that all the stuff is is going to be very very explicit. There's no implicit stuff. And the other thing you do, just like any big system, you do integration testing. So if you are working with a database, um, yeah, it's probably good to run the entire system with a database just to make sure it really works. And there's no way around that. I'm, I'm a fan of integration testing uh, because there's nothing quite like working with a real system to uh, <laughs> to find problems in your code. And so and not not all problems, obviously not all problems are, are can be solved with a, you know, a, a, a type-safe compiler. There are a lot of other problems. There's logic errors. There's... Yeah, it's actual business logic. Yeah. You can't, you can't uh, envision that. Yeah, I mean, infrastructure, you know, what happens if I try and talk to a database and the database is not there? What happens if I try and talk to a web server and the authentication fails? Like that, you know, that's, that's something you need to think about no matter what programming language you're using. Those are fundamental uh, things that you need to think about. And, it's, you know, that's something you, t- integration testing can help you Think about that. I mean, obviously, if you think about it in advance, you can do that too. But integration testing is a great way of finding problems that you haven't thought of. And like, how, what is your testing philosophy? It'd be interesting to maybe delve into that a little bit. Kind of, you know, are you do you do a TDD kind of approach to designing software, or do you kind of you know test as you go along? Um, I don't do TDD. Uh, I think TDD has gone. A bit, people misinterpret it. I, I always liked TDD as test driven design, whereby the best way to design your code is to pretend that you're a user of the code. And so it's like rather than trying to have a kind of uh, design something, thinking about everything you could possibly need, you say, well, I need to do this one thing. What do I actually need from this class? What do I need from this module to get this thing done? And so you're you're kind of working from the outside in. And so test-driven design is a a good way of doing that. But if you're doing... uh, functional program with types you can very much do the same thing with types it's like if i give you this type uh, i expect this other type as an output and with with the strict type checking you can by the time you get all the types working you have pretty high confidence that it's actually going to work even without testing so you tend not to test things that you might test in other languages like for example i never do any testing for null uh, I never do any in, in in F sharp. It's very rare to do sort of defensive programming. If I have an email address, I never have to check whether it has an at sign in it because I've defined a type called email address, and that email that's sort of been validated already. And because it's immutable, and because it's validated once, it can never get out of date. It can never become corrupted, and so I never ever have to test for it again. So those kinds of things, uh, you tend to do a lot less defensive programming. So I tend not to test. I would test if there's kind of complicated business logic, I might test for that. But I tend to do a lot less testing in a statically typed functional language than I would do in something like Python, absolutely. Because in Python, I never really know. Um, And one of the things about Python or any kind of dynamic language is that the tests serve two purposes, once for one, one at the design time, but also later on, if I change my code, have I broken all the tests? It's like, have I accidentally passed in a null 
when I shouldn't have, you know. And in in some in a dynamic language like Python, you're never really sure whether you did accidentally break something when you when you've refactored it. So you need to run all the tests to make sure, uh, and hope that your test coverage is high enough that you you haven't missed something. In a statically typed language like F sharp, uh, if I refactor something. I'm re- by the time it, typically what when you refactor something you rename something or you change the type or something you get hundreds of compiler errors and you just work through those compiler errors fixing them all up one at a time and by the time the whole thing compiles again you again you have very high confidence that the whole thing works you tend not to worry that you've accidentally broken something I, that's one thing I never I never have with F-sharp. I, I very rarely worry that oh you know did I did I mess this up uh, let me rerun the test suite to make sure that's that's not that's not a very common worry yeah so that's what that's one less thing that's a huge kind of weight off um that's one of the reasons i like static typing yeah that's cool i, I suppose and static typing is that would you say different to how java and and c sharp do does static typing kind of you know the testing there obviously you probably would have to do more yeah because because first of all they have nulls and secondly, because it's immutability. So just because I've checked that an email address has an at sign in it, you know, further down in the program, somebody else might have changed it. So I basically don't trust it anymore. So I have to do sort of defensive programming. So you give me an email address. It's like, is it null? Maybe is it is it still valid? I don't know. One of the reasons, so the mutability gets in the way, the nulls get in the way, the fact that you tend not to create lots and lots of tiny types. So if I'm programming in C Sharp or Java, I probably wouldn't create a special type just to represent uh, an odd line quantity. I'd probably just use an int. But because I use an int, I'm actually allowing myself to have subtle bugs. For example, you know, an odd line quantity probably shouldn't be negative and it probably shouldn't be 5 billion or whatever it is. You know, those are bugs. But by using an int, I haven't really thought about those bugs. If I have a special type called order line quantity and as part of the constructor, I say that it can't be negative and it can't be more than 100 or something, then I never, I'm never going to have those bugs where it's the wrong, you know, it's out of bounds. But creating a little type like that, I mean, F-sharp, that's like, you know, a one-liner. In, in C-sharp or Java, that's like 20 lines of code. That is the problem, isn't it? And, and I mean, you showed in the DDD talks you've done in the DDD book you've written how expressive a type system like, you know, F-sharp can be compared. Obviously, if you're then trying to replicate that in like the, the very OO languages, it's a lot more code and a lot uglier. So people are less likely to do it as opposed to just saying, oh, I'll just pass in an int then. But like you say, these the set of actually what you're thinking of what could actually be provided in there would be much greater than you kind of envision. That's right. And the other thing, and just going back to my DDD, my DDD talk, which is that, you know, if you have a special type called order line quantity, you now got documentation as well. So if I say this thing takes an order line quantity, you know, it's order line quantity times price, I would tend to have special types of that. And so I've got a self-documenting system by using the types. If I just say it's an int times a float, it's not very clear what's going on. These are just, they could be anything. And you could easy, it's very easy to get them mixed up, an int times an int, which is the first int parameter, which is the second int parameter, and so on. Having lots and lots of types not only reduces errors, but also makes for more self-documenting code base, which is, so that's, you know, till, kill two birds with one stone. That's exactly it. And uh, throughout the talk, you know, you, you did a lot of good examples. You know, you talked about Roman numerals, composition in that regard, FizzBuzz, which was great. And uh, the one real like kind of use case you did was using the Suave IO uh, li- web library, F-sharp one, and how everything is a web part and how you just compose all these things together. Um, it'd be really interesting, maybe you can explain kind of that philosophy and, and what, how it's using its Kalesis composition. Yeah, Kleisley, Kleisley composition. Yeah, so this is so this is a good example of the different, you know, a completely different philosophy. Most web applications, they have a controller and they have a view model and they have a, you know, some domain logic or whatever it is. In the in the in the functional model, you want to do composition, so you want a pipeline. So something comes in, like a piece of JSON comes in from the outside world. And you want to say, well, if it's a post and it's going to the you know slash update URL or something, I want to do this. So rather than having a controller method which is you know attached to that particular thing, you want to do it through a pipeline. So how can you? But you, the pipeline needs to be every piece of the pipeline needs to be reusable and composable. And so can how do you do that? Well, the the Suave approach is to is this thing called a web part, and a web part is a function with a, a, an HTTP context as an input. And a, so HTTP context is everything you need to know about the HTTP 
context, which is the requests, the response, the cookies, the authentication, whatever it is that you need to know. So that's the input of the function. And the output is an optional you know, uh, uh, context, um, which means that if you can't deal with it, like for some reason you, you want to fail or something, it's like, I can't handle this request. You just say, oh, you turn nothing instead of something. And then that's basically it. And because of that, you can then glue these things together. So for example, you might have a, a get part, a, a web part called get, and all it does is match the HTTP context uh, with a get request. And you might have another one called post, which matches with the post. Now, if it matches, it succeeds. And if it doesn't match, it fails. So you take that, and then you might have another one which matches certain paths. So you have the, the update path or something. And if it matches that, it succeeds. And if it doesn't match, it fails. So then you can glue the get part to the path part. And that one will only succeed if it's a get and the path matches update. And then you can pass that to another one, which, you know, checks the cookies or whatever it is. And then you can pass that to your uh, your domain logic, which basically takes the, the body of the HTML request and parses the JSON and turns it into domain object and does all the domain logic. And at the other end, you would have something like a, you know, a 200 OK part, which just you, you give it the input and it responds with a, a 200 OK as the output. So, so you glue all these things together into a pipeline and there's your that's your web app. No objects, no controllers, no if conditions, no conditionals, all composed and easily expandable, which is just the beautiful thing about it. Exactly. You just stick in new kinds of parts. Um, and, a, you know, a library might have, would provide a set of parts which you can use. So an authentication library would have some authentication parts. You just stick them into your pipeline and now you've got authentication. Have you seen this being used in other languages? I mean, more, maybe more predominantly OO languages, this kind of concept, because the whole web part concept seems very applicable to any kind of web application, or is it, I suppose, it need to, does it need to be kind of a, stra a statically typed language to get the full benefits with the fail and all these kind of things? Yeah, it's it's hard to do. I mean, you see a little bit with the middleware in um, the latest version of uh, ASP.NET Core, where you basically do pass these things around and there's a chain of people who can act on this but it's not quite it's always a, it's, it's a mutable model so it basically you pass this thing around and if you if you want to change it you pass it down to the next one but the idea that the, a function would fail and you would then bypass the rest of the pipeline that i don't think is in there i'm not exactly i'm not 100 percent up to date on how the uh, the latest asp.net works but it's pretty unusual in an object-oriented model. And that's only really useful for the middleware. You still have the controllers and the views yeah. and the so Because it's, it's such a beautiful model. Like when I saw that code, I was just like, this is the beauty of composition. You know, how you can kind of dilute down to just this, you know, very easy to understand, comprehend type definition and use it in so many contexts. I mean, it, it ticks off all three of those boxes uh, that, you know, you were the analogy boxes you had. Absolutely. I mean, it's... Uh... Once you start seeing it everywhere, and I think this is one of the really nice things about learning functional programming, is even if you don't actually use it in practice, I think it makes you a better developer because you start seeing, you start thinking in problems, you, th you start looking at problems in this way. You say, how can I make this problem into something where it's got composable components? So even if you're doing OO or something, it's still a very useful way of breaking, you know, thinking about how to do how to break down problems into smaller parts. I think it's an extremely valuable way of kind of looking at the world. And uh, so functional programming is just, you know, it's just one way to kind of attune your mind to thinking that way. But once you start seeing it, you start seeing it everywhere. And then you start, and then the next thing, you know, you'll be sucked into all the jargon, like you'll start talking about category theory and monoids and all that stuff. Oh dear. Uh, so thing actually be really interesting to talk about. So you actually, you work with F sharp works consultancy uh, and it would be cool maybe to like kind of discuss, you know, how, how long you've been for a consultant and like, what, how does it differ? How do you find being a consultant, having a consultant role as opposed to working a single company, maybe with a single code base? Yeah. I mean, I, I started being a, a independent contractor a couple of years ago and, um, it's 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 okay for me because um, uh, having a having a niche thing like F sharp is actually kind of good in a way because if you want someone to do F sharp consulting, you know there's a limited number of people to choose from, so it's kind of it's it works out quite well for me. Although, funny enough, I actually just came off doing a Python consulting job of all things, so uh, that that was that was fine too. So I'm not I'm not I'm not like strictly just F sharp, but I'll I'll do any kind of job if it's interesting. There's uh. I, I personally, I mean, I've enjoyed working in, in companies. I've worked in all sorts of companies from kind of 
startups to big government things. And if the problems are interesting, that's fine. You know, um, if the if and if the people are, are good to work with, that's good too. But um, I've also found some of my most stressful stuff working in companies too, and literally going going crazy, uh, and that's not good. Well, it's harder to change and it's, I suppose, adoption of things and stuff as opposed to, you know, in the consulting role. You, and if you specify, you know, if you're interested in a certain thing and you want another problem, you know, consulting's great because you get to see different places and different problems. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the nice thing about consulting is it's a sort of take it or leave it thing. And in some sense, like if you don't like, you know, I mean, I deliver something and hopefully it solves your problem. And if you throw it later, it's like, well, okay, you know, I don't feel bad about it it's not my fault if i'm working at a company i tend to get very attached to the kind of long-term thing of the company and so that's the, the pro and the con the, the the advantage of working at a company is you can see something develop over a series of years and you can you can start a project and then yeah you can nurture it and like five years later it does and you can see a lot of value being given to the business when something works well so i mean that is one of the frustrating things about consulting is you just you tend to be more in and out but the downside of, I mean, this, you know, this, the, the, the flip side, of course, is that when you're working in a company, sometimes it's very hard to affect change. And I've realized that I think different people, again, people have different personalities. Some people like to fight for change and they sort of enjoy it. Uh, personally, I, I kind of get stressed out by that. So I don't really enjoy doing that. And um, for me, what works is more of much of a, even more than consulting is, is doing publishing and being an author and, and training and stuff because it's a one way basically it's like here's my blog here's my book i hope you find it useful if you don't find it useful sorry you know i don't feel guilty i don't feel like i have to apologize to people um that that, that uh you know it didn't do everything they want i don't really have to respond <laughs> it's it's much more you know my way or the highway which is a funny i mean it's a terrible thing to say but well, no, because you it allows you to shape your future of what you want to do, and it, and it's kind of a lot less stressful and a, you say a lot less kind of go, you know going against the grain of what pe- other people may want. You can kind of say this is what I've got, and it's, it is a take it or leave it approach, which as opposed to you know you've got to use this or you know it's a, a conflict. Yeah, and it's it's my it's just my way of looking at it. And if you if you find that useful, that's great. And if you don't find that useful that's fine too and i it's it's a much more hands off thing i don't have to sort of get emotionally involved in in if I'm, when i'm working in a in a business and, and i've been working there a while i do tend to get quite passionate about things and um sometimes that's hard because you know business big especially big businesses don't find it hard to change and also there's often a conflict between my logical model my, my my management back you know not not that I have a management background but I've done I've seen a lot of management things happen and I can understand why managers do certain things which annoy programmers you know for example if you're a startup and you've got something that works you know there's no point redesigning everything you know it's, it's okay building up lots of technical debt for example is very common at startups and I can totally understand why they do that they just don't have time They've got to try and find the product first, and then they can go back if they've got something that's going to solve something. It's a very different mindset. That code may not be around in a year because you won't have any funding and it's gone. So it's a race more than more than a marathon. I mean, Facebook, you know, wrote everything in PHP and they're very successful, and now they're having problems with PHP and they're using Haskell and and we, uh, OCaml or whatever it is. But I mean, they, if they'd written the very first thing of Facebook and Haskell, they, it might not not have been successful. And so you know, there's a lot to be said for getting out of the door, even if it's buggy, even if it's not a very nice design, because it's, you know, once it's making money is more important than, than having clean code. So, I mean, that's my, that's for my management hat on, for my programmer hat on, I, you know, it gives me the shivers just looking at some of the code that's been shipped. So, you know, I can understand sort of both points of view. It is, it's a lot of internal conflict mentally between knowing you know, what's the right thing from one point of view versus what's the right thing from another point of view. And so that's probably why I'm not a very good manager and I would, I'd be very unhappy if I was in a, in a management role. 
Well, it's interesting because, you know, it's just, you know, it's that whole tying yourself to a framework and things and the whole, you know, Uncle Bob thing, you know, you know, you, your structure of your application shouldn't look like a Ruby or Rails application and things or, you know, these kind of CRUD systems and very, you know, like a lot of frameworks go around this, you know, quick, rapid development lifecycle stuff. And you can understand that in the early time, because as you say, you're trying to get things out, you want to make see if something sticks, and then you can go back and kind of hash out your domain, because you don't really know your domain yet. You don't really know the problem you're trying to solve. I used to do a lot of stuff with Visual Basic, and I used to do a lot of stuff with um, pre-Fox Pro. There was uh, a bunch of kind of visual database languages. Uh, there was Paradox, and there was another one I can't remember what it was called. But they were great. I mean, um, you could literally knock together a UI in a few hours and connect it and complete with a database. I mean, they'd all be completely connected. So for CRUD apps, they were fantastic. You'd By designing the screen, you'd be designing the database schema at the same time. And I mean, from a from a kind of big picture point of view, that's a terrible thing. But from a shipping, getting something out of the door quickly, they're awesome, you know. And I think we've, to some extent, we sort of lost that. I mean, it's kind of sad for me that you can't just build a web page out of some HTML. You now need to have, you need to understand CSS. You have, have a JavaScript framework and all that stuff, which is a shame. You know, this whole thing of knocking together, I do think there's definitely a role in, the, in you know, there's a lot of different kinds of programming around. I mean, sometimes you're programming the space shuttle, but sometimes you're hacking together, you know, some brochureware for a small business. And you don't need to have the same kinds of programming processes for those different kinds of things. If you're knocking together a, a thing for a small business, just you know, knocking together something in a few hours, that could that could be fantastically valuable. And so if, so if you make it in PHP or you make it in Visual Basic, fine, that's great. You know, there's value, it's valuable. It's the transition, isn't it, though? It's when code goes from being just a hack thing together to being something that you maintain and then you have to adapt it on. And that's when you have to decide, do you carry on with the path of what it's like or do you then have to do a rewrite and things like that? And I think that's where the friction happens, where people are like, no, we've got to do it right first time. Or as opposed to, no, we can go back and just change the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, that, and that is a problem. And I, I mean, uh, having had to maintain very gnarly Visual Basic apps, um, I can have a lot of sympathy. I, I don't know that there's a right answer to that. It's very, it is very much context specific, isn't it? And kind of where, you know, can you, is it, is it a kind of leave it or kind of slowly adapt on it? Because this is the trouble with things like WordPress. Uh, you know, anyone can set up a WordPress, you know, easily set up something and someone very novice can set it up, add a couple of extensions. And then you'll find, you know, and this is a very typical use case, people will find that, oh, I want you to do X with WordPress. And they can't do that that simply because there's no extension for it. So you then end up having to write your own things for it or your own, you know, I mean, this happens in any, any kind of like big application like that. Yeah, you get into this problem now where it's like this problem you're trying to solve solve now would be easier if we rewrote this or had it in you know we mapped it to main we looked at it from a you know point of view where we're not tied to something such as wordpress or a framework but you started off that way and it's that slow progression but i think that's a client maybe you know again it's the management client problem of trying to decide where that point is where you say rewrite yeah i mean and i think this goes back to the whole thing of composition if you had built things out of lego uh, and you want another kind of piece of Lego, you know, a new kind of, you want a motor in there, you can just like pull apart some of it and, and stick another bit in and it will still sort of fit because it's this, because each piece is completely independent. And what makes something like WordPress really painful is that, I mean, actually WordPress is pretty good by, by most, you know, application standard. At least it has a plugin model. Um, but, you know, it's, it is, those, the systems are, are not designed to be composable, and so I think you can sort of get the best of the best best of both worlds, where you where you can build little tiny things from a bunch of little building blocks, and then as the thing gets bigger and bigger, you can keep the same model uh, and just make the building blocks uh, more and more sophisticated. And going all the way back to the, the beginning example of Unix, the Unix components which you connect together using piping, you know, you can build some pretty complicated things. Using the standard Unix components is pretty amazing what you can do. Though I think where they begin to fall down is not the components' fault; it's the fact that using text as the as the the interface, the universal interface is is text that sort of falls down. But um, uh, I haven't really played with PowerShell, but PowerShell doesn't use as an object-oriented model, and I think you can do some pretty amazing things in in PowerShell as well. So. 
But it's, it's interesting, actually, because I, m- I remember in your talk, you were saying, you know, one of the things pinch from, I think it was pinch from Wikipedia, you know, about Unix is the idea that you don't rewrite, you write something new. And that's an interesting, interesting philosophy. I think that's a very important, I mean, and what's interesting is that a lot of this, these things go back 40, 50 years. We, we think we're so clever for coming up with, you know, dependency injection and, and composition and stuff. It's like people have been aware of this. People weren't stupid, you know, 40 years ago. They've, people thought about this stuff and, um, you know, the, the idea of building things out of smaller pieces, the idea of building blocks and whatnot. Um, but yes, the idea that you don't, um, you, you, if you have a, if you want to change the logic rather than, contorting the logic of one piece, one component and ending up with horrible conditional logic. Well, if it's this kind of thing, do this, this kind of thing, do that. No, you just build another piece that does the new kind of thing and then you glue those pieces together. It's, you're, you're a lot less likely to have bugs if you, don't, and if you don't, don't alter any code. If you treat your code as immutable, just like you treat data structures as immutable, um, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to introduce new bugs. It's a very interesting mindset isn't it actually to think of that where you know a code base is shipped and then it, to change it you would have to write something new and and it kind of revolves around the single responsibility thing where that's the responsibility is solving if you're trying to change it you may be adding in extra responsibility exactly and i mean and funny enough this goes one of the reasons why people like microservices the same kind of thing you if your microservice is like you know three or four hundred lines of code um and you want to rewrite it you literally throw it away and write a new microservice. You don't try and edit it. It's such a kind of low cost hanging fruit, isn't it? It's not something you can just, yeah, it's easily torn out because it's only 400 lines of code. How long will that take to rewrite? Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, yeah, again, having lots of small components that fit together is a good idea. I think it's, it's whether you call it microservices, whether you call it Unix pipeline, whether you call it Brio or whatever. But you can do it because that was something you were mentioning last episode, sorry, was, you know, that you can do this in a monolith. You know, you design, you know, DDD can be done well in a monolith. You can do through namespace segregation and stuff. All these things can be done in just a monolith. You don't have to do the physical separation, which a lot of people think is mandatory to actually get around this. That's just kind of enforcing the rule as opposed to, you know, your mindset, you can enforce it. Absolutely. If you if you do everything through interfaces, well, I mean the classic OO thing, you do things through interfaces. You can rewrite the thing behind. You can change the implementation. Yeah, I mean that's the again that's the that's the theory. It's for some reason it, again. I think it's because it, you're allowed to what you're forced to do and what you're allowed to do. You're not forced to do that. You're not forced to have an interface for everything. And there's always an escape hatch that's kind of an implicit escape hatch all the time with these things. I suppose. Yeah, and and in functional again, one of the things about functional programming is it pretty much forces you to have interfaces because every function parameter is actually defining an interface. So in in OO model, if if I have a a class that I'm passing in, in you know, if I want to say actually I really want to do it slightly differently, I have to make an effort to define an interface, and I have to decide, I have to think. And it's like halfway through the coding, it's like, well, I don't really want to think. I'll let me just add this extra method to this class and just make this massive class, you know, that does everything. In functional programming, the, interf- the, 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 the type is the interface. If I have a, if I have a, a type, uh, a function that turns apples into bananas or whatever, that is a an interface. Any function that turns apples into bananas will fit. And so I don't have to define a special interface in order to reuse, in order to swap out the implementation. Absolutely. And, and it's been interesting, this whole talk, the whole discussion we've just had, a lot of these points kind of were brought up in a certain uh, keynote that was done in Closure Conj uh, in late 2017 by Rick Kiki, Rick Chicky, a creator of Closure, obviously. Uh, and it's this whole static versus dynamic typing, I would say a debate, but really, you know, he kind of didn't, he wasn't attacking. I don't think he was attacking. I just think he was seeing it from his perspective of what he felt. And obviously, closure is a very much kind of his opinion on things. And he's wanted to solve a problem. And that's the way he solved that problem. And he saw from the languages that he was using at the time. That's how he wanted to go about doing it. Um, I was just wondering, you know, it'd be great to get your thoughts on it and kind of how, how you perceive it, how you perceive like his discussion on it, and also the backlash or more like the kind of, you know, flame wars that have happened since because of it. Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of sympathy. I, I have a lot of respect for Wichiki, and I also have a lot of sympathy for dynamic people who d- develop in dynamic languages because, uh, you know, I have spent a lot of time, probably two-thirds of my programming career, I've spent in dynamic languages. Uh, a lot of small talk, a lot of Python, um, a little bit of PHP and so on. Um, and then, you know, C-sharp and now F-sharp. 
I, I can really understand where he's coming from. I think dynamic languages, especially if they're very highly iterative languages like uh, Smalltalk, which is an absolutely fantastic language, it's not just the language; it's the environment and uh, it's the way that you it's the it's the you know the way that you do things. I think what which Hickey was getting at is that the kinds of problems which developers need to solve, the kinds of problems which are solved by having a static type system is a very small part of that. And um, he he's concerned when you're working with a business domain, you know, things, the real world is is complicated and the real world has weird stuff in it. Yeah, thing, and things change and you want, you want flexibility. One of the things about types languages is that types cause coupling. So if I have one function uh, that spits out, you know, cherries, another function that's, inputs cherries i can't you know i need to have cherries around i can't just like have part part of a cherry if i have a have something that looks like a cherry but has extra stuff like cherry with extra you you wouldn't be able to pass that in exactly and and i wouldn't be able to pass in just the 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 cherry stone or the the stalk or the whatever it is you know so there's 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 coupling types do induce coupling between it's i guess in a sense types anti-modular because the it's you know they 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 are kind of global i wouldn't say they're a global uh, variable but they do but aren't they that isn't that their strength i think that's where i kind of go part of it is the fact that it's defining this very strict thing it's a it's a very strange world <laughs> it's a contract it's a contract between yeah. things and so the good thing about having a contract is that con- it's a very strict contract and if you break the contract you know straight away a compiler the compiler is giving you a compile time you know guarantee that you've broken the contract or you haven't broken the contract if you don't have types you you have a lot more flexibility now so the question is what what are the problems that we try and solve as developers and rich hickey's point of view is that the that static typing does not really address it's it's addressing the problem of correctness and does it does it meet the requirements? Does this piece of code meet the requirements? You say I want this input, I want this output. There are other ways of guarantee of doing correctness checking without using static types. So like, like closure spec, for example. And it may be that correctness is not the most important thing in a program. It may be there's a classic. I mean, this goes back to management theory. Peter Drucker, well known uh, management writer had you know made a very important distinction between effectiveness and efficiency so efficiency is how well does your car engine work uh, but effectiveness is are you driving in the right direction uh, and there's no point if you have a super efficient engine if you're driving in the wrong direction so it's much more important to be going in the wrong it's better to go in the right direction on a bicycle than to go in the wrong direction in a porsche you know and so we spend a lot of time i think as developers focusing on efficiency what's the best compiler what's the fastest compiler what's the best way of ensuring correctness and i think his point is that we can get lost in that and often what's more important is is being effective is actually going in the right direction and static type systems if you're trying to solve a, a business problem they don't help us go in the right direction that was sort of his point. Yeah, and it's the inertia of a type system and how, you know, it's beautiful when it compiles and understanding this beautiful correctness of it, but is it actually solving the problem? You don't know. It may compile, but it may be not solve, as you say, the business problem, which we mentioned before. I, I mean, I'm, I, I have a, like I say, I have a lot of sympathy with what he's talking about. And I think the a lot of the static type people really misunderstood what he was talking about. I mean, I personally think uh, that you can have both. And I think that, I think, Having having a you know a correctness is actually quite important, especially if you have a large code base. Trying to refactor, especially in enterprise development or any large any large code base, you're trying to refactor it when you're coming back. You know, five years later, I think types are really important. I think I think actually having a, an explicit contract is actually really good, and I think types are a great a great way of enforcing. Uh, contracts because the compiler can do it for you. You don't need to rely on people using something like spec to, you know, you can, you can make, you can make mistakes and with a, with a compiler doesn't make a mistake in the same way. Um, so I do think you can get sort of the best of both worlds. And that's why when I, you know, in my, I focus, when I talk about functional programming, I talk about things like, you know, domain driven design. And I talk about using types as uh, to represent, to, to, to document the design I'm, that's why I'm not such. I'm not big on you know purity above all things and um, some of the other things that people talk about with those thoughts, the kind of mathematical concepts behind. I don't you know I'm not going to really force you to learn category theory, you know, 
You're going to show the bits that actually matter and work in a, in a real life use case. Yeah, you see, I think I think that programming is actually a human discipline. It's not a mathematical discipline, and this is where, which is what he got he got in in his keynote, which was quite good as well. You know what he envisages it. Okay. Programming is not a, a mathematical thing. Exactly, and I think that's a difference between again. That's one of the the. It's a it's a different paradigm. I think people are talking past each other. The the people who there are people who believe that programming is a mathematical activity, and if we if we, if we only used mathematical techniques, uh, we our programs would be better. And it and to some extent. That's true. I mean, it is true that we can learn a lot from the mathematical thinking about, you know, we're very, very, very sloppy uh, in our code, and especially things like security holes and stuff. Taking things seriously and 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 having techniques which really do work, I think mathematics can offer a lot. But I also have a, another foot. I mean, I have a lot of sympathy with the the uh, programming as a human activity to solve human problems. And it's always going to be, you know, these are, anytime there's people involved, it's going to be uh, a complex system. Um, I mean, there are, you know, there are some areas of programming which are not people-centric. So, for example, if I'm designing a database, that's pretty much like I, the requirements are very clear. I don't really care what people say because the requirements are, you know, I need to be have transactional this and I need to have a, a, a t- integrity here. And if I'm, if I'm Google and I'm designing the search algorithm or the big table algorithm or whatever, that's very, very mathematical. Yeah. You can have tight algorithms that require, you know, and are very strict in what they are. Right. But if I'm designing, if I'm designing something, which is like a GUI or whatever, like, you know, kind of thing. And it's, I mean, it's kind of interesting to see that Google actually is pretty rubbish at designing I mean, it's interesting to compare Google and Facebook because Google has, you know, has this has a very I wouldn't say they're mathematical, but they have this very kind of academic approach, or certainly they did at the beginning um, of solving things, and they've done fantastic job at solving certain kinds of problems. But they've done a, a, a terrible job at, at, you know, in terms of their their user friendly programs, Google Plus, and and all these things have been disasters. Mm-hmm. Wave, yeah, Wave and stuff. I mean, Facebook. I'm, you know, the, I'm sure the beginning, the early code at Facebook was absolutely rubbish, and it was not; it was completely unsound, and it was full of bugs and stuff. But it solved a problem that people really liked, and Facebook, as as a result, has been, you know, very successful. So, it, it is interesting. Um, I don't think there's a one size fits all. I think if there's, if you know, if there's people involved, then the, there's the programming using mathematical approaches is never going to be enough. Because have you used Clojure and, and List Dialects in the past? It's on my list of things. I've, I've kind of browsed it. I haven't ever done anything serious with it. But uh, no, I mean, I do think I, I, Clojure seems to me like the kind of language I would like because, it, again, it's opinionated. Yes, that's what I was going to say. You know, it's like this is the way you do things. This is our philosophy. There's a philosophy of how you do things. And I mean, I, you know, I think that's good because if I, once you learn it, you know, I imagine if you look at a closure, a decent code base in closure, you, you pretty much understand mostly how it works because everyone's doing things roughly the same way. And it's, and it's boiling it down to you know, a map. It's all about maps. And the idea that having 100 functions for one data type is better than having 10 functions for 10 different data types, doing one thing, doing it well and reusing that. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's something you do. If, if, if all your data types are, are maps or dictionaries, that's great. I mean, funny enough, uh, the early version of Python, before it got object-oriented, was exactly the same. Everything was just basically a map. And in Smalltalk, everything's basically a map, uh, everything. And so, um, and, and Lua, I think, is very much similar that way. PHP as well, actually. Uh, the whole the idea of associative array, I mean, even an array really is just under the hood, just a, a map. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, in a funny sort of way, having a consistent philosophy, uh, I think PHP is a is a bit of a mishmash, but um, but uh, languages where there are definitely a philosophy of doing things, I, I, I like those languages because... Again, learning the language is going to change the way I think. If it's a, if it's you know, lo- learning closure is going to be very different from learning Java. It's definitely going to change the way you think about programming, and I think that's a good thing. I think as a personal, as a developer, and you want to kind of expand your your uh, personal abilities or your personal growth, learning languages like that is is very good, even if you don't actually use them on a day to day basis. Oh, that's awesome, and uh, just uh, thinking that we've just we've hit over the hour mark, so it'd be really cool actually, maybe just to fi- finish off with kind of just like a platform for you. Like, is there any interesting topics that you've currently been exploring or reading about? There's 
Hmm, not really right now. I tend to, I in general though, I tend to think the most interesting thing for a developer to do if you want to learn new stuff is to look at things outside non-technical stuff so look at you know look at management theory look at psychology of teams look at user interface stuff look at uh, a lot of this stuff because i think this helps you be a better developer because it it makes exposes you to a whole world of things outside of technical stuff and it also helps you interact with non-techie people uh, I mean, understanding how teams teams work, understanding the psychology of how uh, different people work, uh, like family therapy. It's interesting. Uh, some people really like those books on family therapy, and it's like, well, why is that relevant to programming? Well, it turns out that a lot of the things that show up in a family show up in, in development teams as well. You know, somebody arguing, having vicious fights over stupid things. You know, the daddy figure and the and the mommy figure and all this stuff. So it's it's kind of interesting. Um, and I personally like to read people who who and for example the whole thing of design patterns that came from architecture so uh the expanding your horizons outside tech, just the techie stuff i think is definitely a good thing in general it's interesting because like from from an outside where I, I perceive you you know you're kind of you're very much you know you've, you've always got a math background and you would assume that you would be very much into that kind of academia stuff uh but then obviously you know you're very interested in the human aspect as well which with blend is just amazing you know to kind of have um but i'm just interested do you do a lot of research still in academia circles with maths and stuff or you mainly make opportunities for psychology no no i mean i mean i got enough maths that i can read stuff but i'm not to be honest i'm not i, I find it fascinating but th- when i went to college i realized there were people who were so much cleverer than me there is just there are some people who really are sort of geniuses and I, I couldn't possibly compete with those kinds of people i mean it's like they're on a whole different level so i mean i find it interesting well you provide a, a valuable service to uh dilute it down into something that you know us mere mortals can understand so uh, i highly appreciate it yeah i mean well going back to one one particular book, there was a book called Crossing the Chasm, uh, which came out in the 90s, and it in turn was kind of a popularization of the a theory called the diffusion of innovations. And that book talked about the different – that was the one that sort of introduced the idea of early adopters and main late, late adopters and mainstream and so on. And the chasm there is the bridge between the early adopters and the late adopters the people who will just use new technology for the hell of it because it's cool and the people who actually want to get some value out of it and are not going to just do something because it's cool and there's a chasm there's a there's a gap between the two and the whole book was how do you cross that chasm how do you make stuff useful to people and i i sort of see that's where my role is to basically be a bridge across that chasm is to try and introduce to take ideas which i think are important but not necessarily mainstream and and help make them mainstream by by explaining them to people in a way that's not intimidating and you know basically it should be easy to understand well i'll gotta say personally you do that very well uh, and i'm sure a lot of other people would say the same well thanks very much awesome well i think audience it's been another great episode and uh, we'll speak to you again next week goodbye you've been listening to three devs and a maybe you can contact us at contact at 3devsandamaybe.com or follow us on Twitter at the number 3, Devs and a Maybe.